EMA Online Game Recap Podcast. Mason Voth and Alec Bussey with you as we are the two guys that were in Manhattan yesterday being able to take in the Cats and the Tigers as they kind of reignited the rivalry that they had, former Big 8, Big 12, and even before that, if you want to start shrinking the numbers some more. Uh, they got back out on the football field for the first time in 11 years. It was a big topic of conversation throughout the week was the reignition of this rivalry Colin Klein was obviously a part of it the last time that it happened Chris Kleiman was asked about it if he was aware and with these teams being so close to each other geographically they share the same recruiting footprint and that was a big topic of conversation amongst the players some that thought they were overlooked and weren't offered by Missouri and wanted to come through for that or other guys that knew the story of their teammates feeling that way and they wanted to make sure that they were going to be able to go out and get the job done for them I would say that they succeeded in doing so because they ended up coming away with a 40-12 to 12 with an asterisk victory in yesterday. Uh, but, Alec, we'll, we'll start with just your, your generic thoughts. And uh, now that you've been able to take in two games at Bill Snyder Family Stadium, uh, what you feel like the atmosphere for, for football at K-State is. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that you can ask for a better start for a Kansas State defense this year. I mean, essentially going, I think the lead I used in that story that I wrote yesterday after the game was they've gone 119 minutes and 59 seconds without allowing a touchdown. So essentially they've gone two games and they would have gone two games if it wasn't for Eli Drinkwitz calling a timeout with one or two seconds left and then that free play down at the end. So, um, you know, it's a great start for the defense. I've been really impressed with what the back half of the defense has done. I thought Kobe Savage has had two really good games. I think that Julius Brents has had two incredible games, both at the safety position. And then Nico Bodo has played really well at corner too, and really not getting much of the shine at that cornerback position, which is maybe a little bit of a good thing because teams haven't really had a lot of success throwing at him. And that's a lot of times what happens for corners, right? But I don't feel like people have talked enough about what the pass rush has done. They have 10 tackles for loss yesterday against a Mizzou team that really likes to run the ball and it's an SEC offensive line. And while Mizzou certainly isn't one of the best teams in the SEC, they definitely are a team that does have talent, especially at some of the skill position spots and to be disciplined enough to keep contain on cook was obviously important because he was, I believe their first or second leading rusher yesterday. Um, so just overall really impressed with what Kansas state has done defensively. And I think the discipline of that group has what's really stood out to me the most Mason. Well, when you think about the defensive line and, and really not getting their shine for anything, it's tough for that position typically. If they're not getting sacks, a lot of people just kind of turn a blind eye to it and don't think much of it. But they're just as active as everybody else on the defense has been flying to the football, which has probably been the number one thing that has stood out through the first two games of the year is that you have, I mean, Kobe Savage in week one made a name for himself immediately. But everybody else seemed to be around the ball. Josh Hayes finally got to play yesterday, and he stepped up. He played the most snap snaps out of anybody on the defense, and immediately you, you felt his presence. Then they were obviously able to, to kind of swarm to the ball itself with the four straight interceptions. But back to the defensive line, I mean, we had a play where Eli Huggins looked like he was the primary defender of running back <laughs> Elijah Young, where he caught the dump off immediately, and Elijah Huggins was – top of him like he was there ready to get him it was a it was a pretty impressive play and after the game I mean he went on to say that hey I didn't really have an assignment there I just was looking to make a play and found him and and fell on top of him so the defense has been impressive they've been all over the place and, and we'll dive a little bit deeper into them coming up here in a little bit also the offense is able to come away with a lot of points in the first two games the problem with it is that it has not looked maybe the prettiest at times it has left a few things to be desired and then there is the process of 
The kicking game has not been there. Penalties have been big killers early on. Uh, but but what are your overall thoughts of the offense after yesterday's game? Yeah, I don't know if this is maybe me just being a little bit too lenient with what we've seen out of the passing attack in the first two weeks, but I just feel like Kansas State really hasn't been in a position where they've had to throw the ball. And if you're not in a position to have to throw the ball, why throw it? Um, and I think Adrian Martinez has less than 160 combined passing yards in Kansas State's first two games. He has one passing touchdown. Is that right? Did he have one against South Dakota? I don't remember exactly. No, you didn't. no, I think I don't think he has a single touchdown pass this year, which, you know, I, I guess if you can get Adrian Martinez through the year winning games with no touchdown passes and no interceptions, you probably would take that because he hasn't turned the ball over, which is probably the biggest stat. And that's more concerning to him and the coaches, I think, than the touchdown numbers. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think you look at that South Dakota game and it was one of those situations where they were up big going into halftime and they ended up winning that game 34 to nothing. Like you're just not going to throw the ball in the second half. There's not really a huge reason to throw the ball in the second half. You're only going to open yourself up for potentially injuries um, and obviously all those negative things that come with doing unnecessary things, prolonging a game, interceptions, pick sixes that could lead to South Dakota making that a game in the second half last week. And then against Mizzou, they didn't really have to throw the ball either because they were up a couple scores for most of the second half. And also, it was terrible weather conditions. Like Coach Kleiman said after the game, it's one of those things where if you're not having to throw the ball a ton, like why throw the ball? I just think it's one of those things where they haven't been forced to throw the ball. And I don't think they're going to be forced to throw the ball next week against Tulane. Like I haven't dove into Tulane's success defensively in the first two weeks, but I wouldn't expect Tulane to provide much resistance to Kansas State's offense just based off of pure talent differential between the two programs. So, we might not see Kansas State throw the ball until they play that first Big 12 game against Oklahoma. Well, that would scare me if we got to that point. I would like for them – I understand the first two weeks why it hasn't necessarily happened. Uh, and, and I will give Chris Kleiman's approach a little bit more thought of, hey, I'm not going to panic too much about it right now because his, his words yesterday were, I'm not going to do any complaining over a 40-12 to 12 victory. And, and that is fair. That, that makes 100% sense to me. Uh, Tulane through their first two games, they have beaten UMass 42 to 10. UMass notably worse than Kansas over the last however many years. Uh, shout out to the Jayhawks 2 and 0 to start the season. And then Alcorn State yesterday, 52 to nothing. The Green Wave wearing their all blues were able to get the victory. Those uniforms are phenomenal, by the way. Those light powder I, look, blue I uniforms. Love them. Yeah, those uniforms I, are I great. Love them. And, they got, and they got the Green Wave logo on the helmet. Those are some of the best uniforms in college football. I'm all about them. Now, I will point this out, and I, I agree with it. Uh, my my former co-host that I used to work with in Wichita, he does like to point out that it's weird that the Green Wave is always wearing blue and that their best-looking uniforms are blue. But, you know, I get it to some extent. And the other part of this, I looked at the weather forecast. Still stays out from Saturday. It's not looking great because isolated thunderstorms are what the 10-day and forecast we gotta says. Mason, you didn't tell me it was going to be like this when I moved out here. I didn't expect this to be tropical rainforest type weather for game days. Well, you know, we, we go through like three months where it doesn't rain at all, and then it ends up where we just get it all in one day or one weekend and call it good. So we'll see. Uh, this is what the, the weather is described as right now for Saturday. 91 degrees, isolated thunderstorms in the morning, then skies turning partly cloudy late, high of 91, winds 10 to 20 miles an hour. Chance of rain, 30%. So we'll see. I guess the scarier part about that is yesterday it was just telling us that we were going to have rain and we got some of the thunder and lightning as a result of that. It's a little bit more concerning when it's just like, hey, thunderstorms, because then that means uh, even 
getting rain, which is, you know, what, what's the point of having a thunderstorm if you're not going to get rain with it, but if we're going to have any more delays. So hopefully the weather stays away or you're able to get a little bit of time where Adrian Martinez can actually throw the ball and you feel like either the score or the weather isn't dictating just to run it or play it safe because that has been the way things have gone. I thought maybe they would push it a little bit more in week one. I get you don't want to wreck Adrian Martinez's confidence because I do think if he had gone out and turned the ball over against South Dakota, then things in the back of his head start to turn a little bit more and that would worry you. Uh, but overall, I, I would like to see them start to, to give a few more shots. Adrian Martinez there. Uh, but we'll, we'll dive a little bit deeper into the offense because I think they've done some really good things. I think that there have been some uh, not so great things that have gone on there. Overall, though, defensively, we, we mentioned the thoughts from that. They have had a dominant start to the season, and it's tough to name just one guy that has done it. Obviously, Kobe Savage's name is going to get thrown out there a lot because of week one. The fact that he came away with an interception yesterday against Missouri on, I mean, he he read that play perfectly and kind of baited Brady Cook into throwing that ball right into his hands. It was one of those that if he had not picked it off, it's probably going for a big touchdown for Missouri and the game maybe starts to change a little bit. But he's probably one guy that stands out, but everybody just flies to the football. Who's a guy that outside of Kobe Savage has, has stood out to you defensively to start the season? I'll take a bit of a cop-out answer here and take uh, Sincere Mason. He's got, obviously, the two interceptions. I thought his interception, it was the fourth one that Mizzou threw, I believe. No, third one that Mizzou threw yesterday. Um, I thought that was a great play on the ball. It was a late read on the ball where he kind of explained it yesterday after the game where he didn't have an opportunity to really flip his hips and get a good look at it. And by the time his he got his hands up to make a play to catch the football, it looked like it was, I mean, basically in his face mask and – Obviously, that was a huge play because I think Kansas State went after that and ended up getting points on the field goal attempt. So I think Sincere Mason's been a positive, and especially coming off of an injury at the end of last season, it's good to see him kind of contribute and play with confidence, I think, is a key thing. A lot of times you see these guys come back from serious injuries that force them to miss a few games at the end of the seasons or force them to miss an entire season altogether, and they struggle or they don't look like they're just pulling the trigger and going to play football. So I think it's a really good thing to see Sincere Mason just play quick, play fast, and you see those things, and it should be confidence boosting for the rest of the defensive back unit because he's got two picks. Like you said, Kobe Savage has had a few. I've been impressed with Julius Brents at cornerback. Um, he had four tackles, I think it was yesterday. He had an, um, a couple of big hits against South Dakota. So I think what Kansas State is getting on the back half of their defensive unit has really kind of led to the success that they've had in the first two weeks. I mean, obviously, we're looking at it from a standpoint that they've allowed one touchdown over 120 minutes of play. But we're also looking at it from a standpoint that Missouri's wide receiver group is pretty talented and they weren't getting open downfield basically at all uh, for most of the game. I know Mizzou took a couple shots deep down the field in the second half. One of them falls incomplete to Levette. And then another one was completed, I believe. But, you know, you look at what Kansas State's been able to do and keep defenses or keep opposing offenses in front of them and not get beat over their head. That's huge. Like, that that's big, especially in the Big 12, when we know how talented some of these opponents that Kansas State's going to have to play are when it comes to throwing the football. Obviously, Oklahoma's got a lot of talent with Dylan Gabriel at quarterback and Mims playing wide receiver. He had a deep ball yesterday for the Sooners. So being able to kind of build confidence early in the season, I think is huge for a Kansas State secondary that had to replace a lot of key contributors from last season. Well, and Missouri's wide receivers, a lot was made of them going into the game because they do have a talented pool there. They've got guys that on paper everybody should believe in and should think highly of. 
Well, that really didn't end up being the case because Luther Burden was the main concern, and he was anything but a burden on K State's defense. Nine yesterday. total yards. Yeah, he and and again they they try to get him the ball in situations with whatever they can do. So they try to give him a, a ball where he gets a carry. It doesn't work out. I mean, he got six yards out of it. They don't go back to it. He gets one catch for three yards in the game. He had a drop. They were all over him. He wasn't able to do anything. And in addition to all of that, you mentioned Julius Brents. So he's been great in coverage this year, which this is something that as you kind of get, you know, more well-versed with K-State, pick up on last year, Julius Brents was always in position, it seemed like, to make a play. But for some reason, whether it was his fault or it was just kind of the random nature of how football works out, the ball always seemed to go right past him or something weird happened where it took a bounce and it ended up into the hands of the of the the opposing receiver and so it seemed like Julius Brintz was getting torched left and right and so this was a big year for a guy that some people think has potential to be a corner in the NFL to actually come through and prove it and through the first two weeks he has done so because he's locked down guys that he's been on and in addition to that it's been the fact that whether it's a guy that has caught a pass or a guy that's running with the ball he has seemed like he has stepped up to be kind of that last line of defense for him to fly across the field and make a play and not just make the play, but make it with quite a bit of force because he's come in there pretty hard. You know, we, we can talk all we want about some of the different things that this defense does well. The most impressive thing to me is that every one of these guys is hitting hard, but they are still making the tackle for the most part, which has been a giant hole in K-State's defense over the last however many years. And really a problem that everybody in college football deals with now is not actually making tackles. Yeah, I want to comment real quick on what you were saying about Brents. And maybe this is just something that I've noticed in my brief time here. Obviously, it's we're entering our third week here, second second or third week here, right? Um, and with Brents, I've been really impressed with how big he is. Like yesterday was the first time I had an opportunity to see him in person and be able to interview him. I was really impressed with his size. I feel like with other defensive backs that we've had an opportunity to interact with, and this isn't throwing a shot at, a Kobe Savage or a Sincere Mason. I mean, Sincere Mason's physically impressive in terms of his muscle mass and his build, but Kobe Savage isn't very tall and he's not like super long. He's kind of lean, doesn't have the biggest arms, doesn't have the most impressive muscle mass, but Julius Brent just is big. Like that is a big cornerback. And that's a difficult thing to kind of throw over and kind of target because those guys are just different, right? Like length is such an important thing for cornerbacks when it comes to jamming guys at the offense or at the line of scrimmage when it comes to, um, you know, making plays on the ball down the field. And it obviously helps when you're trying to make a tackle or you're trying to lay a hit in the open field or on the sideline. And we've seen Brents be really successful with that. And I like what you said there about how much success Kansas State's had at, you know, laying big hits, but also being consistent with their tackles. Yesterday they had 50 tackles. I think total is what the stats ended up showing at the end of the game, 40 of them. And I think this is where it's a really telling stat is 40 of their 50 tackles yesterday were solo tackles. That shows a really impressive level of fundamentals and commitment to making the play that needs to be made with it when it comes to tackling. And that's that's showing a lot in your first two weeks. And 40 of your 50 total team tackles coming as an individual is really, really impressive. And the players after the game were giving a lot of credit to, um, you know, kind of taking on some of the older players and what the older players kind of were messaging to them and old ways of philosophy and old ways of, beliefs inside the Kansas State program of ways to be successful. Well, and thinking of of the tackles and, and the solo tackles and getting guys to the ground, actually, 
it seems like they have made quite a few tackles this year already where if a guy slips through, it's going for at least 10, 15 more yards, if not more than that even. And they've been able to make those key tackles in space, do it when it matters most. And I think that's one of those things that moving forward, I get that you're playing inferior competition right now. And, and certainly Missouri at this point looks like, like way inferior competition, which is not something I expected. I thought K-State would win. I thought they were the better team, but I wasn't really sure. You know, there was this hype about Mizzou got all these new transfers defensively and they've got all this talent trying to catch the ball. And Elijah Drinkwitz is supposedly one of these just geniuses in the game of college football. And that was the result yesterday. It still, I think, translates to when you're making those tackles and, and you're the last line of defense or at least the last line for a little bit to get in there and make a big stop, and, and they've done a great job in doing so. So I, I've been blown away by them, and, and I think the other stuff that maybe you think is missing from the defense right now will start to come around. I, the last thing I'll ask you on this, though, coming into to K-State and, and us trying to catch you up to speed on it, you probably thought that this defense was going to be awful this year, or at least was going to be a big weak spot, because I was not very high on the defense. There was a lot of questions about, Who's going to play safety? What is all this going to look like in the secondary? Depth is a problem. Right now, they've avoided any injury troubles, and they have looked really, really good defensively to where that almost seems like the strength of this team right now, which would have been unimaginable uh, even two and a half weeks ago. Yeah, I think coming in, my biggest concern looking at the Kansas State roster, and maybe it's funny in a way, maybe I actually have a strength here coming in because I don't have – an understanding of what I saw last year, which kind of is counterintuitive, right? Like what my understanding was looking at Kansas State's roster was all just study based off what I had read from other people, um, brief amounts of film that I had watched, right? Like my concern looking at Kansas State coming into the year was obviously one depth at running back um, behind Deuce Vaughn, but two, who's going to play and who's going to contribute at the safety position. And then three, what kind of Adrian Martinez was Kansas State going to get a quarterback? And, Certainly the first question has kind of been answered. That's still one of my concerns. I was actually pretty inspired with what I saw after the South Dakota game with what DJ Giddens provided behind Deuce Vaughn at running back. But Giddens only ended up getting a couple carries yesterday. Um, and he obviously had a touchdown run. He had two carries for 29 yards in the touchdown. But He's very efficient carry, yesterday. Yeah, well, his first carry was only for a yard. I think Kansas State needs to do a better job of getting him involved in the rushing attack because I think just relying on Deuce Vaughn to – be a bell cow back for, you know, three downs every single series is potentially asking a lot. And you don't want to put that much on him. If he gets hurt, I mean, running backs get hurt pretty easily at every level of football. It's just kind of the way things go, right? Um, I just would be trying to get another back confident, trying to get another back in that rotation that you can rely on. But the safety position has been answered for full. Like, I don't really have any concerns looking at the Kansas State safety position or the defensive backs altogether for the rest of the season. Yeah, and they're going to see right some now. other talented wide receiver cores, right? Like, I mean, we know Texas with like Xavier Worthy. That's one that I didn't mention earlier. Like, he was the best wide receiver on the field yesterday against Alabama. Yeah, I, I think that they are. They're going to obviously run into to some better competition, but I think right now they've proven themselves. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I feel good about them moving forward, and that isn't something that I anticipated. Moving on to the offense and everything that has gone on there, there are a lot of concerns and. Uh, we'll talk about it at the end here, but it would appear that Adrian Martinez has won the legacy race between him and Scott Frost. Was it Adrian <laughs> Martinez? Was it Scott Frost? Who was the problem in Lincoln? 
Nebraska keeps on finding ways to lose games, and Adrian Martinez is no longer in the building. He's not even in the state. So, to me, I would think that maybe Scott Frost was the problem. I don't know. That's just my opinion on the situation. So, Adrian Martinez uh, is fine. He's having a great start to his year. He's 2-0. He just blew out an SEC opponent. He has not turned the ball over. And Scott Frost got fired today, despite the fact that his buyout was going to drop a monumental amount come October 1st. 50%. Yeah. Uh, Trev Alberts came out to say today, the, the Nebraska athletic director, they owed it to the players and blah, 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 all these other people to just do it now. And they were not going to save any money by waiting another 19 days or 20 days, however many days are in September. So they make that move, and uh, that's disastrous. So I think leading into this conversation about the offense, I have not been bothered by what I've seen from Adrian Martinez. I would like to see a little bit more opportunities for him, but like we laid out in the beginning, weather and you know just time and situation have kind of dictated that K-State isn't going to throw the ball a ton. And yesterday he was able to, on fewer completions, have more passing yards, so that's a benefit. I don't think he's been the issue in the passing game for K-State, even though they can maybe try and do it a little bit more, work it better. Receivers got to get open, and it's really concerning because on this offense, it's the receivers that have the most experience anybody, you know, minus the quarterback spot. Martinez has been around a long time now, and so you take his singular focus away, but you think about the first three guys that step onto the field at the receiver position. Malik Knowles and Phillip Brooks have been in Manhattan for a really long time now, so they know what it means to play K-State, you know, receiver at K-State. And Cade Warner's played college football for a long time, and those guys aren't doing a lot. We had drops again yesterday by Brooks and Knowles on kind of pivotal points that could have created either big yardage or set something up. And they just haven't been able to work themselves in a position to make a big play yet. Now, maybe that's coming. I don't know. But through the first two weeks of the season, I'm not concerned about Adrian Martinez. He needs his receivers to step up a little bit more and help him out. Yeah, I think that the receiver position could be a bit of a concern at this point. But I would also say that I thought Brooks played pretty well yesterday. I think he had five or six targets. He had, I had seven targets yesterday um, and he held in three receptions. So not overly impressive, but he was pretty productive on his two receptions. He goes through receptions for 57 yards, one of which is 28 yards down the field. So that's obviously pretty impressive. And that one comes, um, I believe in the first quarter, that was his first or second reception of the game. So I think you have something in Brooks and obviously we know Knowles has a potential to be productive at the receiver position has the big playability. I mean, heck, just look at the first play from scrimmage Kansas State had this season against South Dakota, right? I mean, he takes it 75 yards on a jet sweep to the house. Uh, but it's about consistency for those two guys. And I don't think you can expect Cade Warner to, you know, be a stud wide receiver. I don't think yeah. that that's fair. Like the athleticism isn't there for him to be a stud wide receiver. But there are people at the receiver position that do need to elevate their games. And I think it's pretty fair to say that obviously Knowles is one of them. I think Brooks needs to elevate himself a little bit. And I think you could even see the tight ends get involved a little bit more in the passing game too, Mason. Well, and we'll see how much more they can kind of get involved and in what their, their flow ends up looking like. I think some of these positions will be a little bit more fluid and it's about finding. So whether it's the tight ends or it's at running back behind Deuce Vaughn, which for, for this season appears that it's really only going to be DJ Giddens unless somebody else comes through. But even then, they're not sold on it. So my concern lies with the receivers right now, and we'll see. I, I told you you know, before the season started that Malik Knowles has a ton of talent, and that's been known for K-State. 
early on he had more talent than what the current coach or the past coaching staff gave him credit for. Now he's got the talent and the current coaching staff gives him the credit for it. He just occasionally drops are a problem. There's some inconsistencies. seems like in the past there's always been a little nagging injury here and there. So he's got an opportunity, but when he dropped that pass on that slant yesterday, that, that was kind of a, a punch to the gut. There are just things time and time again that happens with these K-State receivers where they find a little bit more consistency, which they, they are capable of. Like, I don't want this to be a bash on the receivers thing. They just have not played up to the level that maybe they need to and what they are capable of. But if they start to do that, this team is destined to do really good things in the Big 12 and in college football this season. I, I, I wrote about it this morning on the site, and I just said, look, if they clean up the three – minor things that have become major problems for them through the first two weeks with what we saw yesterday in college football there's going to be craziness this season I mean it already feels like we've got like a 2007 feel to this thing and I'm not saying that K-State is destined for a New Year's Six game or you know being a national championship contingent like they were in in 2012 but what I am saying they certainly have a good chance to win the Big 12 or at least play for the title in Arlington right now I mean I think if you were grading what you've seen through the first two weeks of the season, Oklahoma is up there by way of the talent, and they played well in the second half yesterday, but they almost went to halftime down 3 nothing to Kent State. That's not very exciting. Texas, based off what they've done, I actually have to give them credit now. I, I, I don't think highly of Sarkeesian, and I, I thought the Quinn Ewers thing wasn't going to work out. Now he's hurt, so we won't know on that front, but – and anybody that can a couple weeks. Anybody that can hang with Alabama like that, hold them to 20 points and be in that game, deserves a lot of credit. So Texas is probably the most impressive team to me so far in the Big 12, even with that loss. Oklahoma State, maybe, but that defense is not looking great early on in the season. So there's some flaws everywhere else. But K-State is one of these teams that's in this position. So if these receivers can kind of just take over here and, and step up a little bit, be a little bit more consistent – bust another player to each game k-state is going to be in a much better position than they already are to kind of compete in this league i feel like we're starting to get an understanding of where things are in the big 12 a little bit more and that that's saying a lot i feel like because coming into the year i think everyone kind of struggled to predict really like one through 10 in the conference mm -hmm. like i don't think anyone had the same order of teams i mean you saw some people with Oklahoma winning the league. You saw a lot of people pick Kansas State to win the league. You obviously saw people pick Baylor. Um, there's a few people that pick Texas. and I've Some had West Virginia in the top half, and they are now locked into dead last, it would appear. Yeah, um, but then there's also an understanding of where things are going to be in the Big 12, which I think is really entertaining. Like, I stayed up late and watched that Baylor-BYU game last night, and that was awesome. Like, I think the Big 12 is in a situation where one, it's the most entertaining league to watch top to bottom because there isn't a huge drop-off between Team 1 and Team 10. But two, it's one of those things where it's going to be really competitive because of that. And I think the race to get to the Big 12 championship game in Dallas or Arlington, whatever the correct way to phrase it is. Um, I'm you can just say, uh, you can just, you know, yeah, yeah, you can refer to it however. If you say Dallas, people know what you're talking about. Jerry, uh, I've, I've been to Arlington long enough, and as a Cowboys fan, I'm – I'm politically correct when I say Arlington, but yeah, you can whatever term you want to use to refer to uh, that palace down there. Uh, you can you can go for it. When you get to, I think it's just gonna be tough to predict who gets the Big Twelve championship game, right? Like I think Oklahoma has clearly impressed that they have a good opportunity to get there. Give credit to Brent Venables and what he's accomplished in his first two weeks. 
um, but they haven't really been overly tested yet. Um, obviously, Texas, like you said, was really impressive, but now you're down your starting quarterback. And while I was really impressed with Texas, and we know Texas has a lot of talent, and I do believe in Sark, so this is something that you and I are a little bit different on. I believe in Sark more in the big picture, I think, than you do, and I still have questions about what Texas can do this year, and they sneak into the top 25 entering what is week three of the season. I think they're around 21. But, you know, what Texas has struggled with historically in the last decade is they get up for the games against Alabama. They got up against Alabama yesterday. They got up against LSU in 2019 when LSU had that national title team with Joe Burrow. Then they get up for the Oklahoma game. But then they do things like they did against Kansas last year. And now it's one of those situations where, and we joked about this yesterday in the press box, that you need to get up every single game after this. And that's going to be really interesting to follow, in my opinion. I think Texas can compete for a Big 12 title this year. Like you said, I mean, if you can compete with Alabama on a field early in the season, that says a lot, especially with your backup quarterback in the game. And yeah, Alabama looked really sloppy. But give Texas credit. Like, their defensive line looked really good against an Alabama offensive line that came into the year with questions. And Texas probably wins that football game if their cornerback that blitz blitzes at the end of that game is able to bring down Bryce Young. I or, mean, you know, they, there, there are so many what-ifs in that game yesterday for Texas where if they make that chip shot field goal before the end of the first half, like what does that do? Yeah. And just so many things that go into it, but it is going to be Or the roughing the pass or penalty in the end zone or yeah. the safety in the end zone on that same play, right? But And even someone like Texas Tech beats Houston and – that's a big game. And we know Texas Tech can throw the ball all over the field and they have a lot of talent. And yeah, they're down their starting quarterback, but he's going to end up coming back later this year, they think. So I think the Big 12 set up to be really entertaining. Like you said with Oklahoma State, there's questions about what they can be defensively. They still have to answer those. Giving up 17 points to Arizona State's definitely an improvement after giving up 44, I think it was, against Central Michigan in week one yeah. on that Thursday night. Um, but it's one of those things with Oklahoma State. They're a program that I kind of just throw a lot of blind faith at to be in a situation where they're going to win, you know, seven, eight games at a minimum, probably be closer to that nine, 10 wins at the end of the day. Um, coming from the Big Ten, like, to me, they're very similar to Iowa. They're similar to a program that you just kind of throw blind faith at that they're going to be in the conversation at the end of the day. They're going to be hovering around the top 25. Um, now, obviously, Iowa's got a lot to figure out offensively in the Big Ten, but you know what I'm saying? I think the Big 12 is in a situation where there's a lot of teams and there's not a lot of separation between Team 1 and Team 10 at this point because even – West Virginia, who's 0-2, and they've lost two games in pretty frustrating fashion. Um, you know, they're still talent. Like, JT Daniels played pretty well yesterday, and you figure out some of those things heading into the rest of the season, and there's no reason that I can't see Kansas State or Kansas um, make a run and obviously see West Virginia do something miraculous and end up winning, you know, five, six, seven games if they get lucky and win a few of those yeah. point toss games. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. The bottom of the league is going to be fun to watch now. We know that because, I mean, and Pitt loses to Tennessee yesterday at home, and I, I'm not sold on Pitt being a good team. But West Virginia goes from being in a game with Pitt to losing at home by two touchdowns in overtime. That is tough to do, to lose by two touchdowns in a sport where typically you just win by one possession in overtime. So that's going to be fun. TCU has – kicked everybody's butts the first two weeks of the season now they played a terrible colorado team who got i think beat by 31 yesterday to air force um Neat. not very often do power five schools get beat by 30 plus by service academies so uh good for the the falcons 
And then they beat up on Tarleton State, TCU did. Texas Tech, like you mentioned, gets the victory. So the bottom of the league is going to be kind of fascinating. Uh, and we'll talk more about them in a second. The last thing I want to hit on with the offense, outside of penalties, which have been a problem, but everybody has had a penalty problem, whether it's Seth Porter on a punt yesterday where he's getting into it with a Missouri defender and takes his palm and gives him a pop to the helmet. I watched the replay this morning to finally figure out what the penalty was for. It is because Seth Porter kind of got fed up with what the guy was doing and just decided to give him a little pop to the forehead, and uh, he got penalized for that. So that moved Missouri out from inside. I mean, it was for sure in the five. It was maybe close to the, the two or the one. They move him out on that penalty. You had defensive penalties on short yardage situations yesterday early on that they had to make corrections on. They did. And then the offensive line had some penalties yesterday as well. And and the concerning part to me is that these penalties are coming from offensive linemen that have been around for a long time now. Um, but overall, I, I can look past some of those right now. I think that they can get those corrected. It's one of those things that early on in the season, maybe you can kind of let fall by the wayside. But my other thing on the offense that I wanted to make sure to mention is, even though maybe it hasn't looked the cleanest, it hasn't been as exciting as this dominant victory over LSU in the bowl game, and you're coming out looking flashy, doing all these things. It feels fast. It feels fun. I think Colin Klein has still done a really good job through his first two games this season as offensive coordinator, and I thought yesterday he did a really nice job calling plays. Some of them did not manifest because of either A, penalties, or B, uh, his offense did not come through for him. But I think Colin Klein is still doing a fantastic job as a K-State offensive coordinator. And I think that just needs to be said. That way people don't get lost or feel like looking around like he's been a problem because I think he and Adrian Martinez, two guys that maybe people are a little bit colder on right now, I think that you deserve to still give them a lot of credit. Yeah, I think with Klein, there was a bit in yesterday's game in the third quarter where things got a little stagnant, but I think you can tie that to the penalties. I mean, they had those four straight interceptions on defense, and I think they only got one touchdown out of it, and that's obviously not something that you want, especially when you take over Missouri territory on three of those possessions, I believe it was. Uh, so that's obviously a little bit frustrating. I thought they kind of got away from running the ball a little bit, or they kind of ran into a wall a little bit there on those three possessions rushing-wise. But overall, yeah, I mean, you put up 40 points, like, Clyman said it yesterday after the game, and I thought it was a good question when someone asked him, I forget who it was, about those penalties. It was like, yeah, it's definitely something that's a little bit frustrating, definitely something that's maybe a little bit of a concern, but at the end of the day, like we put up 40 points. Like I'm really not going to be concerned about it. But if you if you do start playing close games, like we just talked about, like we think the Big 12 is going to be in, those will cost you. Um, those will really hurt you. And if you're getting four turnovers, that's something that you should be winning games in a deciding fashion like Mizzou, um, in case they went, case they wins 40 to 12, obviously, but you want to be in a situation where you're able to capitalize on the mistakes that your opponents make, but you also don't want to make mistakes that are going to really cost you. And I think Kansas state yesterday, if they were in a close game and you have three or four different opportunities there where you get interceptions and you're only able to escape with one touchdown and you get the ball three times inside Mizzou territory, that's something that you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot about. Uh, maybe a little bit in the film room on Sunday, on Monday, when you could really start to dive in and look at that stuff. So that's something that I do think that Kansas State is probably working towards fixing this week is trying to find ways to come out of the gate quickly after a turnover and find ways to get in the end zone. And I think a lot of that comes down to getting a rhythm in the passing game and being able to hit things in the play action pass game because I think teams are able to kind of sell out a little bit on the run right now with Deuce Vaughn. Um, and if you're able to kind of just hit some short passes, those 
five, 10 yard curls, those underneath passes, screen passes to Knowles or Brooks. Um, they obviously had the one to Warner yesterday. That was supposed to be a double pass play that ended up going for a screen pass to get a first down. Right. But I think that if you're able to start hitting those easy passes, the offense might start to fluctuate um, or work in a way that is more productive on a consistent basis. Well, and thinking about then, you know, some of the way that the offense is going to work and, and the troubles yesterday with some of the problems that came up, I guess let's focus and, and talk about real quick the kicking game. Chris Tennant again yesterday misses a PAT and a field goal continues to be a problem and it's not ever a good thing when your head coach and you know in two straight games has to address the kicking situation and say hey we believe in him we're going to keep giving him chances which has been the situation with Chris Kleiman and Chris Tennant uh what what is the 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 solution moving forward for K-State is it to keep giving him chances and cross your fingers that he's going to be able to get it figured out because the leg is there the accuracy has been absent and the guy behind him in Ty Zentner is a phenomenal guy on kickoffs and punts, but his kicking record at Butler Community College was not very good either. So we'll see what the solution uh, ends up being here. Yeah, I think special teams obviously has had impressive plays in the first two weeks when you think about a punt return for a touchdown like Brooks had, but then there's also concerning aspects of it when you look at the fact that, you know, Tennant's missed a few kicks. He misses a PAT, I believe, yesterday, or a PAT against south dakota so that's obviously a bit concerning mm-hmm. um you know he's just 50 percent on the year he's 80 percent on extra points so that's obviously concerning as well but um you just you don't need your college kickers to be nailing kicks that are 45 yards or longer like for me if i'm a college coach if i'm a college football fan i'm looking for my kickers to find success in the areas of 35 to 40 yards and in like be close to automatic on your opportunities inside 30 yards inside 35 yards where if I try you out there for a 33 yard field goal I know you're gonna make it yeah that's the big thing it's it's all about being consistent in the moments where you're supposed to make them like yesterday for Texas to have a kicker you want him to be able to go out there and be able to convert when you're they were inside like the 15 yard line and that was a bad snap from, it was, yeah, it was. You want everybody yeah. to be good and consistent there. I mean, thank you yeah, today. That's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you today about the Bengals and the Steelers game and how that ended up working out and everything. Like they had to put in a backup long snapper and they end up having the extra point that would have won them the game get blocked because he had it in the air a little bit longer. It threw everything off. So everybody on special teams has to stay consistent. So I guess we'll see how that goes. And that's the one thing that. Kicking has been bad for K-State to start this year, but special teams everywhere else has been perfect. They haven't been burnt by anybody when they've had to defend on special teams, and then they already have two touchdowns on special teams this year with a blocked punt and then a punt return. So they have done a, a good job there, as they always do. And we'll see. And looking, uh, and looking at ahead. what he's done this year, I mean, numbers-wise, I have it in front of me here. Um, on. He hasn't attempted to kick inside of 20 yards this season. He hasn't attempted to kick inside 30 yards. Um, on kicks between 30 and 39 yards, he's two of three. He missed one of them against Mizzou. He didn't have any attempts against South Dakota. He has one miss on kicks greater than um, 40 yards, and that was against South Dakota, and then he's missed one extra point. So if you kind of go back to what I was talking about a second ago, you know, he's missed one kick of the kicks that you really want him to make. I said you kind of want your guys to be pretty accurate, be consistent inside 40 yards. If you're missing kicks over 40 yards, I'm not going to be overly concerned with the college kicker. 
obviously you need to be making extra points, but I think yesterday is one of those situations too, where, and not to keep blaming the weather for a poor passing attack that was yesterday. And, um, coach Kleiman did the same thing and he kind of said the same excuse for the kicking game. He doesn't, it, it, it was a tough environment to kick the football in. It's a tough environment yeah. to throw the ball in when it's really wet. Um, especially when you're kicking and it's slippery and you can't get a good plant. Like you don't really know what happened on that play. You don't know if he slipped. You don't know if he didn't have good footing. You don't know if there was an iffy snap, not a great hold. I haven't seen a great replay of it. Uh, maybe he got tipped to the line of scrimmage, what have you, right? Like I'm not really concerned that he's going to be missing a ton of PATs. PATs are pretty commonly made in college football. I feel like, I mean, they're, what are they? 17 yards. Is that how far PAT yeah. is? Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, actually, I guess it's a little more than that. Probably it's like 20 yards because they do it from the three. So if, if you add your 17 yeah. yards, you move backwards. But still, something you, you should make, and he'll maybe get it figured out. The weird part about it is that both PATs he has missed to start the season came when they scored their third touchdown of the game. So it has not sat at 21 points yet this year. They have sat at 20 each time after their third touchdown. That's just a little uh, note to throw out there and, and uh, kind of keep in the back of your head next week when they play two lanes. So if they end up winning 20 to nothing at one point, uh, you can look up and say, oh, look at that. He, he missed another one right on the mark there. Uh, let's look around the Big 12 before we go even wider as we finish things up here today. First, want to start with the uh, night matchup between BYU and Baylor. This, this weekend was fun, and we're going to have a lot of these continuing throughout the year where we get either future Big 12 members playing each other or former conference members playing each other. I shouldn't even said future Big 12 because like Texas and Alabama yesterday – Big 12 game that features two teams that will be in the same conference eventually. Baylor and BYU play yesterday. Houston and Texas Tech play yesterday. KU and Houston are set to play later this season. So we get all these games going on. And then in addition to that, K-State got Missouri. TCU played a former Big 12 member, even though they never played in the Big 12 in Colorado. So we've got a lot of these connections going on. This was going to be a fun game last night. Lived up to the hype, went to double overtime. It wasn't the prettiest of games, though. And uh, probably some people to be surprised that Blake Shapin didn't look all that good in this game. He, he, he left a lot to be desired there. So what were your thoughts from uh, Baylor and BYU and your first late-night Big 12 experience? I thought they didn't really give the ball to Shapin too much late in the game to throw it. Um, he attempts 28 passes in the game, and I don't have the breakdown on what he threw in the first half, but I thought they tried to run the ball a ton in the second half with – um, guys like Williams and um, Jones, I mean, those two guys each had about 67, 68 yards in the day. Um, Jones obviously has the two rushing touchdowns, and those were big. Uh, but I didn't really think that Baylor tried to throw the ball too much. And I thought that they would put a little bit more faith in Shapin considering the success he had against Oklahoma State in the Big 12 title game and then obviously in Baylor's bowl game last year. But Baylor's defense seems to be at a consistent level that you're proud with. Um, if you're a Baylor fan, I have a lot of faith in what Dave Aranda can do as a defensive coach. I have no reason to believe that he's going to struggle there. Obviously, we saw him struggle in 2020, but that's a weird season. That was his first year at Baylor. Um, I can't think of a worse time or worse scenario to enter um, into a new tenure as a head coach. So I don't really have any major concerns about Baylor. I actually thought BYU, I think, was going to win this game. I think I'd pick BYU to win it in our picks, uh, despite BYU being down their top two wide receivers. And I know that's probably something that makes you think, well, Baylor should be winning the game. But going into Provo is incredibly tough. I mean, that's an incredibly tough environment to play in. It's a road game. BYU is a good team. They're obviously going to be ranked. Um, you know, I think BYU was BYU a three point favorite or was yeah, Baylor the three point three, favorite? No, Baylor, uh, BYU was the favorite, which kind of okay. surprised. I thought yeah, Baylor so, would go out and win, but yeah. So, I mean, like, I thought that BYU was going to win that game. Like, Vegas 
Vegas lines, I think, are more telling, especially early in the year, than the rankings that we give to teams in this industry. So I wasn't shocked that BYU won that game, to be honest with you. Well, and uh, another game that comes down to college kickers because Baylor and BYU both missed field goals in overtime. BYU also missed a field goal uh, towards the end of regulation with eight seconds left. So it wasn't, it's not just K State that has a kicking problem right now. It is a lot of these teams throughout the country that just can't kick the football at this point. Other games in the Big 12 yesterday, Texas, we talked about a little bit ago. They were impressive in what they did against Alabama. I don't know how many teams in the history of the A people have lost the game and been unranked and then been in the top 25, the rankings after that, but that is what Texas has done. Their loss against Alabama got them more street cred than what a blowout victory against Prairie View A&M could have done if they had played them this past week. So good for the horns there. Ultimately, I don't know what it means in the grand scheme of things because I like what you said earlier. They get up for these big games. 2019 LSU, they were in it. It was fun. Notre Dame, we, we all know the Joe Tessitore, Texas is back, folks, moment. Great, whatever. Oklahoma every year, even if they've got a 5-17, and 17, they seem to compete. But it's those little games that they overlook from time to time. It seems like they're just not the most detail-oriented team in the country, uh, and that's bit them in the past. So I, I don't know what this means long-term for Texas. I do know in this moment, though, that I think Texas proved they are a talented football team and they can step up and hang with about anybody in the country now when you prove what you can do against Alabama. Yeah, I'll say this about Texas, too. I do think they need, they need Quinn Ewers to be healthy, um, for to be really successful. And yeah, Hudson Card was impressive yesterday, 14 of 22 for about 155-ish yards. But Quinn on 9 of 12 passing for 134 yards and two drives just kind of flashed why he was the number one overall recruit. He's one of the two or three um, number one overall recruits at quarterback ever. Um, I believe he's one of the only quarterbacks along with Vince Young and uh, Trevor Lawrence to be the number one overall recruit by all those different recruiting ranking services, whether that's us at Rivals, 24-7 Sports, ESPN, um, and now coming in with On3 once they get included in those different things as well. But, um, you know, I think Quinn is incredibly talented. I think he just has a ball come off his hand special. And then obviously we know the success that Bijan Robinson is going to have at running back this year. I mean, 21 carries for 57 yards yesterday is not his greatest day. Um, but we also know how good Alabama's defensive front is with guys like Will Anderson. Um, and then we also know how good Texas's wide receiver core is highlighted by a guy like Xavier Worthy. And there are concerns about the Texas offensive line, but I thought they were actually pretty okay yesterday. Um, obviously they allowed a couple big plays, a couple big sacks late in the game. Obviously Will Anderson gets a big one to, push Texas out of field goal range there at the end. But, you know, I, I've been pretty impressed with what Texas has done in the first two weeks. And I know a lot of people like to see Texas struggle and they like to keep putting up the horns down. Uh, but I it, think it, it was be- very fun to do. Do you want to give your first horns down in K-State I, country yet? or I will not because I am actually someone who would like to see Texas get back to being a level of at least competitive on a consistent basis. I think it makes college football incredibly more entertaining when Texas is good. And I'm one of those people that wants to diversify some of the talent mm-hmm. that is um, at the top of college football. You and Gabe um, have come into this not wanting to make friends. Gabe keeps picking KU. to. I, he might have KU in the national championship this coming week now. Uh, he was the only one of us, though, to pick KU this week to, good for him, to at least cover against West Virginia, and they won. Uh, he even said that KU was not going to finish in dead last in the Big 12 this year, and they get that first win. That's a good spot, I guess, but you guys – 
We got Texas and KU fans left and right. right I wouldn't now. call I just, myself a Texas fan. I'm just saying that I think it would be good for college football if they got away from this whole hovering around mediocrity of winning, whatever, like five to eight games a year. Like your Texas football, you should be winning nine, 10, 11 games a year. And that would be more entertaining for the entire brand and a sport that you and I both obviously love a ton. And then I would imagine a ton of our listeners enjoy watching a lot as, as well. So you're a college um, football fan more than anything. That's what, that's yeah. what you want the people to know. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, and I want, I want, I wanted an entertaining product and for it to be the most entertaining product, they need to, there needs to be some way to diversify the talent uh, because Alabama, Georgia and Ohio state are hoarding way too much of it right now. Uh, other exciting college football games yesterday. And speaking of kicking problems, there were three missed field goals in the game between Houston and Texas Tech, but they go to double overtime. Texas Tech, they beat Houston last year, and they stormed the field against the Cougars. I, just kind of a weird thing to do, but I guess they love to party out in Lubbock. Uh, they get the win as Donovan Smith threw the ball 58 times yesterday, three of which ended up as interceptions, but – it was enough to get the job done as Texas Tech somehow found a way to beat Houston. Houston has now played a total of five overtimes in the first two weeks of the college football season after they lost or they won in triple overtime against UTSA to start the year. Then they lose in double OT to Texas Tech yesterday. The Joey McGuire era has gotten off to a good start. Although, again, I don't know what to make of it just because I don't know what to think of the competition that Texas Tech has played so far. Obviously, some people thought that Houston was a good enough team, but after yesterday's result, I, I don't know what direction to go there. So I think really what this signals and what a lot of these results end up coming about from is that specifically Lance Leipold and Joey McGuire right now, two of the newer coaches in the conference, they seem to have a lot of support and love from their players. They're going to go out and fight hard and find ways to get the job done, and both of those teams did that yesterday. So that's the one thing that I would monitor with Texas Tech there is talent there, even though they aren't a very good team, and those guys want to play really, really hard. So whoever gets Tech in Kansas this year, you have to be ready, and you have to be able to, to kind of step up to the moment. Yeah, and if you're playing Tech, you better be ready to defend against a pretty diverse wide receiver um, court that includes um, Ty Brooks and uh, – or Taj Brooks, Taj Brooks, excuse me, and Donovan Smith. Those two guys are obviously pretty talented, and with how much Texas Tech throws the ball, like you said – Thrown it 58 times yesterday for 351 yards. You're going to have to defend, and your secondary better be pretty ready. Um, and I would just like to give a lot of credit to what Lance Leipold's done. I mean, Kansas has been the biggest laughing stock of Power 5 football for the last decade. And for him to come in, and yeah, they only won two games last year, but you get a, you get a win against Texas, which is obviously huge, and that's one that I think we can all laugh at. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things, too, where he's just made them competitive in a greater nature of things, and that's huge for Kansas, right? Like I don't think Kansas football fans expect to play like they did in 2007. I don't think they expect Mark Mangino era kind of success on a consistent basis, but just look like you belong on a college football field with other power five opponents. If you're Kansas, like they don't even expect a bowl game every year. I don't think. And I'm obviously not super plugged into the Kansas football fan base, but neither just, are they. No, just look competitive. Just look like you belong on the same field. And Give Lance Leipold a lot of credit. He's done that with Kansas in a very short amount of time. Yeah, no, he he has. And you could see that last year, even though they still weren't great. He at least was doing some things to – this gets used a lot. It's a, it's a cliche and everything. But he really was trying to change a culture there. And getting to speak with him at Big 12 Media Days and, and Travis Goff, their athletic director as well, 
there is a different feel around KU and they at least have made competent hires. Cause you said at least try to be competitive. They just needed to try and be competent. And they have done that now with these two guys. And look, the K-State alum in me does not like to hear that. The K-State people listening to this don't like to hear that because it is fun to have your rival be the laughing stock of college football. Uh, and it's been fun to, to not have lost a game to them since Bill Snyder came back. Uh, the only, you know, losses to, to KU this, you know, 15-year run or whatever have happened uh, when Ron Prince was in the house. But it is going to make for at least an interesting watch with them. And they played well yesterday. I mean, uh, they were able to, to do a lot of things. Jalen Daniels is raw as a quarterback, but he does a lot of good things too and makes plays for him. And they're, they're going to fight hard with a lot of teams this year. I, I, after beating West Virginia yesterday, I, I think that there is probably another Big 12 win out there for them. And it's probably going to come against somebody that goes to Lawrence and just isn't awake, isn't ready to go. I, Oklahoma State could be that team this year where I know they're playing in Lawrence. And even though that offense is ready to score for Oklahoma State, like we saw yesterday against Arizona State, the defense was better but they showed some weaknesses against Central Michigan. So that's my call right now. I, I think Oklahoma State goes to Lawrence and loses the KU this year. Uh, that's my uh, my prediction right now, and that will be the biggest win under Lance Leipold that they have. Um, so that's those are my thoughts on O-State. The offense looks good, better than I expected. Spencer Sanders has been pretty consistent. I don't know about the defense yet. I'm not sold there, so they don't concern me a ton. Last team in the Big 12 we'll hit on before we get to the fun news of the day, and that is Scott Frost. Uh, losing his job, now going to have to file for unemployment. His family no longer has uh, a breadwinner in the family, so our thoughts and prayers should be with them as they try to go through this tough, tough time of being, I don't know, probably poor. Uh, if I lost a job, I would be poor. Um, I'm sure they're in the same boat. You don't get paid but, $14 million to get fired, though. Well, I just I just need to see it. Maybe I say something stupid and get fired and see what my buyout ends up being. See where that gets me. Uh, if you do West that, Virginia, if though, you do that, let me know what it is. Um, yeah. I might consider following you down that path if necessary. There we go. Uh, West Virginia. What What are the thoughts now moving forward with the JT Daniels experiment? Neil Brown is uh, in his fourth season there now. He and Chris Kleiman were two of the four guys that were hired after the 2018 season in the Big 12. Matt Wells and Les Miles have both already been canned. But what is the direction of this looking like for Neil Brown and West Virginia? Because they seem to be in that same boat of having to explore spending a lot of money to get a guy to not coach for him after this season. Yeah, West Virginia is obviously off to a pretty tough start. And it's also just the fashion in which they lost the games. Like they, You felt like they were going to go on a two-minute drive um, against Pitt in week one in the backyard brawl. And then they have the pick six after it deflects off the wide receiver's hands. And then they still almost come back and get into mm -hmm. the end zone at the end of the game. So, like, that's just an incredibly tough way if you're a West Virginia fan to lose it. But also, I think that losing the way they did to Kansas is incredibly tough as well. But I still think JT Daniels is talented enough for them to get enough wins, but I don't know how many wins is necessary for Brown to keep his job there um, in Morgantown. So I think it'll be interesting to kind of track and follow that one. They've got a couple games coming up. They play Townsend this weekend, then they go – on the road against Virginia Tech, which is obviously an incredible tough place to play. Like, good luck going there. Yeah. After Sandman, good, good Thursday luck. night, standalone Thursday night for that oh, game. Gosh. Um, now I, you know how I feel about you know going on the road on a Thursday night. That's tough. Um, I expect Virginia Tech to be the favorite in that game, and that's not that's saying a lot because Virginia Tech's not great. Um, 
but obviously then you go and then you start big 12 play and mm -hmm. the start of their big 12 plays is it's tough well <laughs> like they, and look at their home games this year like that's the thing too is if you're gonna lose a home game to kansas you can obviously lose a home game to anybody but being at home should try and help you out a little bit more they get to play at home against baylor which is going to be tough TCU yes. is that 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 uh, is whatever. I, I think TCU will be one of the easier games this year for teams. Now, not saying yes, that it's easy, but it's easier. You're going to be but well coached, though. You're going to get to November, and you're going to get back to back weeks. Oklahoma and K State at home. Those aren't going to be easy by any means. And then th these road games, like you're pointing out, they are tough as well. And not just because of like every game, the Big Twelve is tough now. I, you know, I get how it's this not just of because of the helmet. It's because of where they fall on the schedule. Like mm -hmm. they have to go to Texas, then you come home again, and then you play Baylor. So you're probably playing two of the top three, four teams in the conference in back-to-back -back weeks, and then you have to go um, back on the road to Lubbock, the farthest school west from them. So it's a tough travel, and that's just an incredibly tough team to have to play against because they are air raid and they throw the ball like 60 times a game yeah uh jt that's, daniels that's he has thrown two interceptions this year he is two for two in crunch time throwing pick sixes that cost his team the game now you know, one given, of them wasn't his fault uh, i know i know i was gonna get there and, and save him a little bit but just to, to point it out there golden boy jt daniels has turned the ball over it's just like the whole casey thompson thing in nebraska like i get it some of the picks in that northwestern game were not his fault he still threw interceptions, and look where they ended up. So let's dive into it. Uh, give Scott Frost everything should you we, got because he is no longer the head coach. Before we do that, should we give props to Matt Campbell for getting off the schneid against Iowa in this Ihawk game? We just weren't going to mention that, but uh, okay. good, good for him in the rain. It seemed like every Big 12 game yesterday had rain, and 10-7, woohoo, whatever. That was, I mean, that was take, a snooze Take the under game. on every Iowa game the rest of the season. Seriously, though, a brief credit I will give to Matt Campbell and Iowa State for getting over that hump and winning that game because, I mean, it, as we know, it's tough to score 10 points in a football game. That just doesn't happen to anybody. So I'm glad they were able to uh, get a win in doing so. All right, Scott Frost, Nebraska, got rid of him today. He is a goner, and we probably will not see Scott Frost coach, coach in college football for a while now because the Nebraska thing failed so miserably. What's your take on that situation? I know you were fascinated early on games that were being thrown out to possibly replace Scott Frost. Yeah, I think it's a little bit inevitable. I mean, it was inevitable. I mean, when you look at the fact that they restructured his contract, so they would be able to save $7 million if they were going to fire him on October 1st. And it was just one of those situations where I think Nebraska was in a spot where it wasn't advantageous to their players and it wasn't advantageous to their fans. He continued to put them through the same misery that – they had been through for the last two, three years and the last like 26 games or their last, I don't have the stat exact, exactly accurate, but haven't they lost like 10 or 11 games in a row now by one score or less? Uh, yes. Of their is, like last 10 or 11 straight losses have all been by one score or less. Isn't that true? Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think it's 11 straight losses have all been by a, a score or less. I, I'll have to go back through and, we can recap them, but I know it, it is consecutive. That streak is still alive for them. Um, I don't know the exact number at this point, but I mean, yesterday, just hilarious that you end up in a shootout at home with Georgia Southern of all teams. And I get it. Clay Helton's there. There is some talent, but you know the irony of this, don't you? What's that? Clay Helton got fired last year at USC after well, week two. 
and fast forward 365 days or 52 weeks on a football calendar and he's going to nebraska in week two and it's like the uh the theory you know they they always say that like when when one life enters the world one has to exit clay helton he was the life that exited last year but then he was reborn again somebody else had to be chopped off in week two and it just so happened it got to be scott frost this year and he was the the deliverer of that punishment there but again shootout with georgia southern not going to get things done uh so nebraska they lost by three to northwestern three to georgia georgia southern this year with a blowout win against north dakota by 21 in between even though they were tied at halftime in that game uh and then if we go back to 2021 a seven point loss to iowa a seven point loss to wisconsin a uh, a nine point loss to ohio state so the not one score there, but single digits. Uh, a five point loss to Purdue, a seven point loss to Minnesota, a three point loss to Michigan, a three point loss to Michigan State, a seven point loss to Oklahoma, and an eight point loss to Illinois that started their year. So, shout out to your Illini. Then, if you go back further than that into the 2020 season, a seven point loss to Minnesota, a six point loss to Iowa. <laughs> And then uh, you have to go all the you have to go all the way back to Saturday, November twenty first of twenty twenty, when they lost forty one to twenty three to. Yeah, that was Illinois. That was that was to Illinois. That, they yeah, their you know, second loss that was outside of one score. That was back to back wins for Illinois. Actually, I believe they had won at Rutgers the week prior, and a lot of people are uh, saying, "Is Lovey Smith going to save his job for the second year in a row?" No, it's just crazy the way that Nebraska has lost so many of these games in the same fashion over and over and over and over and over and over again. Like it you like almost feel bad for the no. fans. Like, no. Okay, you know, I kind of feel bad for the fans. Like Nebraska has like very loyal, diehard fans that understand the sport. They're generally good people. Like they're known for like cheering for the other team as they go into the tunnel at halftime. And they're just like, like I kind of feel bad for their fans that this mm. is happening to them. No, that's um, that's all right. They 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 get what they deserve. Here here's some even more irony to throw into this situation. The narrative that kept being thrown out there by the Nebraska believers and some of the others is Scott Frost had a lot of things that he had to clean up with this program. He had to get he had to get Mike Riley's crap out of the program. He had to do this and that and this and that. Do you want to know which two seasons Scott Frost had the most wins in in his career at Nebraska? Probably his first two. It was his first two. You are correct. He won four games in 2018 and five in 2019 with Mike Riley's players. And in the uh, years after that, he has now had a total of seven wins in the last three seasons with his guys being able to get into the program. So okay, hats Mason. off, round of applause to Scott Frost. I'm proud of him, and uh, I love this at Nebraska. This is hilarious. It's beautiful. And I may have to call into my old radio show tomorrow to just take a victory lap and, and hats off to Scott Frost and the boys up north. I'm generally not someone who cheers for people who lose their job, but I will say this. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. You are Nebraska's athletic director, board of trustees, all that wrapped up in a one. You get to hire one person, realistically, who would you hire to be their head coach? Tom Osborne 2.0. I go. Right, I, I, take a page, I take a page out of K-State's book. And I say, look, it worked for them. They got Snyder to come back. What if we got Osborne to come back and rejuvenate this thing? Um, I, I, I really don't know what Nebraska does because I will be honest in this. 
What do you think Nebraska needs? Because I have an idea of what Nebraska needs, and I not think Scott it's a, Frost. Well, not like well, I think I think gone. he came in there with a a personality that isn't going to work in trying to rebuild a program. Because I I think that there was a sense of entitlement there, where he comes back as the the golden boy of Nebraska football. He is here to save the day, and on paper it looked like that's what should have happened. If you can take UCF into a spot where they are. The you know the premier team in college football out of that group of five started the conversation. They won a national of, championship. Yeah, he did win a national championship. According People to forget the stadium. That. <laughs> um, well, I look check the record books. I'll give him a national championship for that year. Um, but he came in there, I think, with so much of this attitude to him that everything needed to be fixed and it needs to be done my way. And we're going to get there because I can do this and I can do that. And then if you end up looking at the situation with that some of that ended up being his downfall. Like everybody's going to remember and make fun of the whole hoodie situation. We got guys wearing hoodies out here. Blah, blah, blah. Scott Frost in the second week of November or September is wearing a hoodie last night when he gets his butt kicked by Georgia Southern at home. Like dude wore a hoodie left and right. What, what's the point of bitching about your players wearing a hoodie? If you are going to relentlessly do it and just little things like that, where I think his attitude set him up in a poor position. So I think, what they need is a guy that is going to come in there and be humble. And I think a guy that is just going to be able to not really be worried about the situation that is in front of him and how people are going to react, whether that's nationally or locally or anything else. And one of the names that has been thrown out there a lot at this point now is a guy that we have talked about already today and the job that he has done at this point with his current situation, which was some of the bleakest, uh, in the the history of college football, and that's Lance Leipold. I mean, he spent time at Nebraska and in the state in, around you know the, the mid '90s to the early 2000s. He was there at Nebraska for six seasons, or th- excuse me, three seasons, and then he had some time in between there at Nebraska Omaha. Like he has been in that state, he kind of understands that culture, and we know with what he's doing at KU, he can swallow some pride. He was ready for that opportunity and all the work that it was going to entail. I genuinely think that that is one of those things that it's not going to be the splashiest thing for Nebraska, but if they really want to be honest with themselves, like Lance Leipold is a true guy that I think is going to be a reasonable candidate for them. And I will say this to the KU friends and people that I know that are genuine and nice people that I like, I would feel awful for you. If you had to go through that, where in year two, things start to look like they are, finally going up KU finally did the right thing in football something they had not done in over a decade and you end up getting that ripped away from you because Nebraska came calling that would be a tough pill to swallow but I really do think that would be something that that Nebraska should consider and a guy like that that they need to look into because it's time to put aside and you also need somebody that can come in there that doesn't think that Nebraska is going to be what they were in you know the the late '80s through the yeah. early 2000s, because that's that that time has passed. Like schools in the Midwest cannot expect to be that at this stage now, and and that history that they have, it has zero cachet with anybody that's getting recruited right that's now. That's our I mean, age. I'm I'm 24 years old, and I I don't know anything about Nebraska being like a legitimate power in college football. So I guarantee you, kids that are six to eight years younger than me that you're recruiting right now. They have zero idea of that situation. So I think Lance Leipold is actually a legitimate guy that they should look into. Okay, so I agree with you. 
but he obviously needs to win at Kansas this year for you to be able to do that. Like if he wins I, four, or I don't five even games, know that. I really like. I think ooh. starting two and zero and doing what they've done and, and the like rectifying that he has done. I think you can look at that situation and say that he has done a genuine job there. I really think that, I agree with you. I, mean, gonna, I just think you have I, a hard I expect time. him to win more now. Now that they beat West Virginia and how they played last night, I do think they win more. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you. They probably need to win four games this year. If you win four or really five games, yeah. Sale. But I, I do think that they will do that, and I, I believe in that situation. I think that Nebraska needs something that isn't sexy. Like, I think Nebraska needs someone that is going to come in and understands what it means to be a head coach and a successful program and what it takes to have a successful football program from top to bottom. And whether that's a guy like Lance Leipold who built Buffalo into a really successful Mac program in his time there, had a ton of success at Wisconsin Whitewater. I think he won like five or six national titles at that D3 level before going to Buffalo. Like, this guy knows how to win football games for whatever reason. And if your concern is that he hasn't done it at this level, that's a fine and fair concern. If I was a Nebraska fan, like I would probably have that concern about Lance Leipold too. Illinois was rumored to be really interested in him too. I know that was a really regular concern from the Illinois fan base was like this guy, like, yeah, he won like six national titles at D3, but now like, I mean, that's the exact same feeling that, K-State Nebraska had with Chris Kleiman. Like, exactly, they, right? No, exactly. This guy, I mean, he was, you know, with like an NAIA school, and then he ends up at North Dakota State, and he wins national titles. Like, I don't know. But exactly. Honestly, the second Chris Kleiman spoke, people jumped on board with him. And ever since then, he has proven to be the right hire. I mean, he, uh, you can go back and look at those guys that were first head coaches at their school in 2019. He may be the best out of them right now. I mean, that's off the top of my head. But he's done a fantastic job there. And, and I think that is what KU has done where Lance, I mean, there was some skepticism uh, by some people were more so those that weren't very informed and they just thought, oh boy, KU already tried to hire a head coach from Buffalo and it didn't work out for him. Like, what are we doing here? But Lance Leipold, each time he has spoken and then he has not only just spoken things into existence, like he actually goes out and does them. I do think that's something that Nebraska has to look for. So I'm with you. Go low key with this thing. Don't try and make a splashy hire because you can it doesn't get always a, work out. You can get a splashy hire. Like I think Matt Campbell would be a splashy hire for Nebraska. And I know yeah. Matt Campbell's name gets thrown around in these conversations all the time. And he probably doesn't like it. And he seems to really like his situation at Iowa state. And I respect that. I mean, we've all seen the video of him crying on the sidelines last year during senior day as he's hugging all of his players. Nice. Like he clearly loves his job and he clearly loves his situation there. And I don't think Matt Campbell is the type of coach that wants to leave Iowa State and go to a job with incredible amounts of pressure and an expectation to win a national title or make it to the college football playoff all the time. And to me, like, I think Nebraska people are realistic enough right now and their expectations and where they are in the stratosphere of college football that they know that that's not very likely to happen again. Um, and I think that Matt Campbell, if Nebraska can sway him away from Iowa State, would be a pretty good hire for Iowa or for Nebraska, excuse me, <laughs> because those are kind of like similar landscapes of recruiting yeah. territory in terms of Iowa doesn't have a lot of players in its own state. Nebraska doesn't have a ton of players in its own state. They've got a few linemen here and there, but will generate a few bits of talent at other positions across the field, but they're kind of similar in their general makeup. And I think he would be a home run hire. If you can convince him to leave, there's other guys like they just need someone at Nebraska who 
is going to make it a program that is built the correct way and like it understands how a college football program is supposed to be successful and the correct way to do things. And if Lance Leipold is that person for Nebraska, I won't be shocked because he clearly knows what he's doing. He's done things the right way in Lawrence. Like you said, it would be terrible for Kansas to lose him after just two years because that's just a, like it would, it's just wild to think of Kansas losing a, a coach yeah. to another school. Like that just doesn't compute in your head because of how bad Kansas has been. Like Lance I pulled makes sense. I mean, there's other names that have been tossed around out there. I mean, I've seen um, Pete Dammel of ESPN even throw out uh, climate. I'm like, mm-hmm. that, that kind of makes sense. Like, I don't know enough about climate and the landscape of things here at Kansas state just yet, but from my impression, he seems to really like it here. And people who are connected to the program and former players seem to think he's never leaving Kansas state on his own accord. Um, meaning he's going to go to another job. Like, I don't know what Nebraska is going to end up doing. If they've got an entire 10 weeks of a regular season to figure it out in a couple months after that, but they need something that is just stable and they need something that is going to allow it to be built the correct way. Yeah. And I'll, I'll rip through this. So, Kleiman, Leipold, those guys have been thrown out. A ton. I think half of the Big 12 coaches have now been thrown out for the Nebraska job, or people have suggested it wherever you may find it. So, yeah, this they is got a that list going for them. This is a list from Pete Thamel. And some of these names, in my personal opinion, don't make a ton of sense. Um, Mark's or Matt Campbell, we talked about why that would make sense. Mark Stoops, I don't think makes sense. I don't know why he would leave Kentucky to go to Nebraska. I know he's from yeah. Iowa. But what he's got rolling at Kentucky is incredible. He just became the winningest coach in Kentucky history last night when they beat Florida. Dave Aranda is interesting to me. Um, I personally don't think he would leave Baylor for that, but maybe he does. Bill O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He went to the Saban School of Rehab. I mean, they just did the whole feature on game day yesterday. It's kind of interesting, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, there's a few other names on here. Um, Jim Leonard, that's the defensive coordinator at Wisconsin. I consider him to be the head coach in waiting at Wisconsin. And I think that's kind of a industry consensus. PJ Fleck. I don't see him leaving Minnesota for Nebraska. Um, Chris Klein, he would not work. He PJ Fleck would not work at Nebraska because PJ Fleck, PJ Fleck is he's one of the most annoying people on the planet, but PJ Fleck has an unbelievable way of making people believe in him when they are connected to the thing that they want to believe in. And he wins football yes. games. Well, like, he I don't think he would games. leave. I, I don't, I don't think he would leave Minnesota for Nebraska. Um, a couple other names on here. Dave Doran at NC state kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, I personally don't think he would leave NC state for it, but you want to get to a higher ceiling program. I could see it. Uh, Sam Pittman, I don't. He ain't leaving. He ain't leaving Arkansas for Nebraska. Yeah, he just is such a good fit down there. And I don't know why you would leave the SEC right now if you're one of those guys. Now, like if for whatever reason, and it's not going to be Clark Lee at Vanderbilt, but like if you were at a Vanderbilt, fine, whatever, get the heck out of there. But Pittman and Stoops, like I think they have good things going right now. And I also like I don't know that the the Stoops thing would work at Nebraska. I think he's carved a really nice niche at a basketball school. I'm sorry to Mark Stoops for saying that because I know he doesn't like that. Coach Cal said it, and it pissed him off. But I really do think that um, he's got a good thing going down there right now. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. I, I think some of these guys, I mean, money talks and the status of being the Nebraska coach. But those are you're going to find out if you're Nebraska in this coach hiring process what your job actually is in the eyes of people in college football because they're going to be the ones that tell you if you're still kind of 
on this higher end of college football or if you're with everybody else. Because if you go down that list and you get to where you're, you know, like say, for example, I don't think it would happen. If Lance Leipold was off for the Nebraska job, I think he takes it because that's kind of an out to a really tricky situation at KU that he's navigating very, very nicely. But you could kind of accelerate your clock a little bit if you went to Nebraska because they're, although bad and although we laugh at them, they are still some steps ahead of KU. I think looking at this situation, um, like if you went down the list and say you you got to, um, like you mentioned NC State, if you if you reach out there and the answer is no, we're good, that's a little bit of a slap in the face if you're Nebraska, and that gives you your wake up call on where you're at. So we'll see. I uh, just last, think last I just here, I'll I'll throw after you you give this. Okay, I was gonna say real quick, they need to just do something that isn't a statement, but I also think the landscape of hiring coach at this point in college football is really, really interesting. And that is because of conference realignment. And I could see coaches wanting to get to a level where they know that their investment in the program because of TV money from Fox or ESPN, AKA getting to the sec or the big 10 is something that they want to do. Maybe that is, maybe that isn't, maybe it's one of those things where now the college ball playoff, we know it's expanding to 12, that idea and that, thought process doesn't hold true anymore like it did two and a half, three weeks ago. But I'm really interested to see what kind of effects conference realignment and super conferences and the money that those schools are going to be able to throw around has on the coaching carousel, not just this offseason, but in future off seasons once that stuff starts really happening you start to really see the effects of it because i think that that could really lead to certain changes in the sport yeah we'll we'll see how it goes uh here is what bruce feldman's list was uh oh, that he threw good. together today uh the first however many on here have big 12 connections lance leipold of kansas chris Kleiman of k-state matt campbell of iowa state um skip over then jake dickard at washington state jamie chadwell at coastal carolina Mickey Joseph, who's going to be the interim head coach at Nebraska right now. Bronco Mendenhall, who uh, is the former Virginia head coach. That would not go over very well, I think, if you hire a guy that just got fired by Virginia. and is He not didn't get fired. Currently. He resigned. Well, he, I mean. He, no, he resigned on his own accord. He wanted to spend more time with his family. He's got kids or I mean, something that are around. What, interesting what does that mean? You know, what does that really mean? Though? They, like, they were really good last year. He didn't get I fired. know, but I – Whenever there's, you know, who actually resigns like that? Urban Meyer. Yeah, he resigned. yeah he's he resigned from Florida. And he, yeah, he, he resigned from a lot of jobs for, you know, whatever reason. Then boom, there he, he resigned was from Ohio State as well. I, I look, I like Bronco Mendenhall at BYU. He did do some good things at Virginia. Um, I'm not sure that would go over very well. Then we get back to the Big 12 connections. Matt Rule, who's the current head coach of the Carolina Panthers. Now that makes sense. I thought about that. I mean, he's done a great job in college football. It would be as out with the Panthers, who they lost, lost today. today to the Browns <laughs> uh, without Deshaun Watson playing and the Baker thing, you know, whatever. So Matt Rule, I, I think that's a legitimate one, and that's another one that Nebraska should probably look into pretty heavily. He was Gary that, Patterson was so is on the list. Uh, Gary Patterson, former you know K Stater, and uh, now the special assistant at Texas to Sark, and then Jim Leonard, the Wisconsin defensive coordinator. My last thing, though just to kind of quell any of the thoughts with Chris Kleiman. I think Chris Kleiman really likes it at K-State. I think that he fits Manhattan and Kansas State to a T, and I think that he's given up so much to leave what he had at North Dakota State to come to K-State, 
start to build something, and, and I think that he and his staff really believes in it, um, then I think if Nebraska came around, like I think it'd have to be astronomical money that they're trying to give him and, and really sell something to him because when you get to the spot that he is in right now and it just has this feel around it that he's pretty comfortable where he's at, he feels good about what he can do here. And, and like we've talked about, there is no guarantee that Nebraska is a better job right now than K-State. I mean, ultimately, there's, there's more that goes around there with fan base and support because it's the only ticket in town. I mean, here in Manhattan, people are worried about the Chiefs as well and, and all over the, the state of Kansas. But there, there is a little bit extra there for Nebraska, and there's a little bit more that can go into some of that stuff. But I do think you have to be a little bit on your toes about that, and I, I don't know that – I think Chris Kleiman would think through this a lot. So I'm – as it stands right now, I don't have any worry in the world that if Nebraska started sniffing around that Chris Kleiman would leave. Now, again, it, it's coaching and college football. Things can change pretty you know quickly. But um, I, as I think hopefully most K-State people do – uh, feel the way that, that Chris Kleiman is probably here right now, and this doesn't concern me yet, but we'll see how it goes on throughout the year. I certainly think that KU is the one that should be really worried right now. And if you know, I, I, if I'm in the position right now of Travis Goff, their athletic director, I've probably made a lot of phone calls today and said, we need to have a, a very soon, we need to have a serious conversation about how much we're willing to commit to Lance Leipold to try and make this thing permanent come up with the money to make sure that this isn't even something he entertains if you really believe in what he's doing. If not, if you feel like you're Travis Goff and you can go out like another hire, then whatever, maybe you're comfortable if, if he walks for a big number. But I think that that's going to be something that will be uh, very interesting to, to monitor and, and we'll see where things move on from, from this point moving forward. So that those are my thoughts on the situation and uh, I'm sure we'll get more in the coming days and weeks. We'll have another podcast out later this week ahead of the Tulane game and a lot more content coming your way over on EMA online. Uh, we, we appreciate everybody that is uh, following along and listening to our first podcast and everything we've done. And uh, I don't know, may, maybe they'll be this long in the future. Maybe they'll be a little bit shorter, but uh, we, we ended up going, uh, I think longer than I anticipated, but there's a lot to get to even in the first two weeks of college football. And uh, I'll let Alec close it out by his thoughts on Manhattan and being uh, around K-State for the, the first week and a half now. Yeah, first of all, thank you guys for listening. Like Mason said, we appreciate it. And thanks for subscribing and reading all the content on the website. That's awesome. Keep doing that and tell your friends about it. We want to continue to expand the website a little bit. Um, but yeah, I'm really happy to be in Manhattan. I'm happy to be on the Kansas State beat. First job um, in the media space as a full-time opportunity graduated college in may so this is an exciting first opportunity um any food suggestions not just in the manhattan area but the towns around it or in big 12 country are very welcome mason and i are going to be traveling across the big 12 here in coming weeks for football and basketball a lot of times together so send those over we want to experience as many good food stops as we can along the way uh, so yeah, send those over. But anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. We appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to interacting with you guys on the message boards and continuing to push out content on the website. All right, that'll do it for us. We'll be back soon. Follow along with us on EMA online, whether that's through the rival site, through Twitter, or both of us on Twitter or wherever else. The YouTube will have our podcast as well as some of the other outlets as well. So a lot of ways to follow along, whether it's you want news on football, basketball, recruiting, whatever it is, we'll be bringing it to you all year long on EMA Online.